Good morning, everyone. I trust that everyone had a good and um, worshipful Christmas uh, time. I hope you were able to at least connect with some family and friends over the phone or through email or letters, whatever it may be. Um, and I just, I hope it was a blessing to everyone. Um, today, we are moving into to my last sermon, being a full-time pastor. And so I wanted to go into a book that I've always been passionate about, but never preached from, which is the book of Nahum. It's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, so I'd encourage you to open your Bible and turn to Nahum. It's a small book, it's only three chapters, um, but I want us to, to look at it in particular this morning and, and to note it in, in light of what's coming around the corner. This week is, is right before New Year's, and so a lot of people are thinking about, you know, what, what did I do this year and what do I hope to do next year? And people are talking about New Year's resolutions and they're talking about all kinds of great, great ideas about how to improve themselves, improve their spiritual lives, improve their, um, their, their family life. All, all of these things are good things for us to think about and set goals for. But I, I wanted to take a text that, that's been an encouragement to me. Over the last 10 plus years, uh, before I go out and preach a sermon, I, I, I get down on my knees, either in my office or I find a small room or a small place, and I pray. And oftentimes, I, I find that when my heart is, is not steady within me, when I'm nervous or I have a lot of things on my mind, sometimes right before services, people come up with all kinds of things. Sometimes they'll come up and say, I want to start a new ministry, and they'll give you this long thing about it, but, but your mind is in other places. You spend 20 hours working on a, a sermon to present to people, and you, you want it to honor God, and, and uh, you want to connect with people, and, and there's a lot of, of self-pressure that pastors put on themselves. Um, I've, I've had people right before services throw things at me, spit on me, uh, uh, tell me they're dying, um, all, all kinds of things that can, that can move your focus away from where it needs to be. And the verse that we're going to look at this morning is Nahum 1.7. And, and in this verse, I would often turn to it when I felt my heart shaking within me. Whether it was while I was praying or right before I went up, just turning in my Bible and reading it to myself was always a comfort to me. And I hope that this verse can be a comfort to you as you prepare for this next year, because we have no idea how it's going to be. We don't know how much like 2020 it's going to be, uh, or, or Lord willing, more like a normal year for us. We, we have no idea. We don't know exactly how it's going to impact our bank accounts, or how it's going to impact our family, or how it's going to impact uh, celebrations that we want to have, all kinds of things. And so I, I hope that after you hear a little bit about this verse, that you, you're able to turn to it and find great comfort and great encouragement and great peace uh, from what it says about our God. Now, before we dive into it, though, I, I want to just get a little bit of history. Because like I said, this is a three-chapter three, three chapter book, and we're not going to look at all of it. Um, but let me give you just a little snippet. Nahum was a, was a Jewish prophet, prophet whose name means like, the consolation or the comforter. Which is interesting because he's not much of a comforter in this book. He had this, this heavy and serious message from God concerning the evil city of Nineveh. Now about 
1,300 years earlier, you have Jonah's interaction with Nineveh and Nineveh repenting. But, but after that, it was a pretty quick slide back down into their sin. And, and they had not only sinned against God, but they had also sinned against his people. And his, the burden of Nahum was to pronounce this severe and irrevocable judgment of God against this Assyrian stronghold, this, this one of the Assyrian capitals, Nineveh. He prophesied that they would be punished, that they would be judged, and it was a pretty harsh, some harsh words that are said in this short book. Nahum opened with this, with this, his prophecy with a true picture of God that we often ignore. Listen to what it says in chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Nahum is, is, is going to emphasize in this book that our God hates sin, hates it, despises it, and he will repay all evil that is done in this world. Nahum 1 verse 3 begins with this, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum's point is, is you know what, God may seem patient to you, but trust me, that doesn't mean that he's going to ignore anything. Because no matter how big or strong human beings are, their time always will come. And God will judge all. And there's a reluctance by some in the church today to admit that our, our God, that which we emphasize as a God of comfort and of, of hope and of joy and of love, which he is, but he's also a jealous God who avenges evil and judges the wicked and destroys his enemies. All of his enemies will be destroyed. The book of Nahum is a stark reminder, as one theologian said, that those who plot against the Lord will be brought to complete destruction. Our God, as Hebrews says, is a consuming fire. And we need to never forget it. But even in the midst of his anger against sin, his character is not changed. Who he is is still the same. And our focus this morning again is on verse 7, which has a very different message from the rest of the letter. Up until this point, the entire letter has spoken of God's anger and his plan to destroy the, the sinful, and, and everything has been negative up until this point. But then in verse 7, we're reminded that, that for those, for those who, who love the Lord, for those who have been, who have been loved by him, for those who have been, as, as Romans 8.28 says, for those who have been called according to his purpose, for them he is not to be feared as if he would consume them. For he intends something other than judgment for those who are in Christ. And this is the emphasis that I want us to note this morning. That, that our God has good intentions for us, and our God is great. And today we're going to make three, or I'm going to emphasize three realities about our God that I want us to take into the new year. That he is good, that he is protective, and that he knows us. Let me pray. Father God, there are many in the church who are 
struggling and suffering. Many in our community who are doing the same. And I pray that the suffering that is going on in this country and in this world would, would serve to glorify your son. Would serve to cause people to turn away from their idols and, and their, their, their selves and instead turn to you and believe. God, I pray that you would cause this church to be unified in heart and in mission. Just because we are not together in the flesh does not mean that we can't be together in spirit. And God, I thank you and I praise you for that. And I pray that you would unite us and that you would use this, this, this year and all that has gone into it to, to bring about something beautiful in our hearts. A greater faith, a greater trust and confidence in you, a bolder proclamation of the gospel so that we may see a revival in this town so that we may see more and more come to faith. Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm us with, 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 uh, with new believers and with baptisms and with, with, with baby believers, Lord, that we can help to disciple in this community. God, all the churches that glorify you, I pray that they would grow this year. And I pray that each of us in our hearts, that we would grow, that we would know your love more fully, that we would love you in response more rightly, that we would walk in obedience to you more wholeheartedly. And Father, that we would cast our anxieties on you. God, give us wisdom. And give us grace. But we are so quickly turned aside from the truth. Fix our minds again upon Christ. And encourage us through him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want us to begin by noting that our God is good. Look at the first part of verse 7. It says, the Lord is good. And this is a reality that, that should cause so much peace and so much, so much comfort. But often we allow our, our consciences even to deceive us. We reject God's goodness because we feel that we don't deserve it. Which is true, we, we don't deserve it. But we can never earn God's favor. That's why Jesus came. He earned it for us. It is all of grace from first to last. The goodness of our God is to be our great comfort when we sin, when we are struggling, when we are victorious, when we live and when we die and for every moment in between. The goodness of our God is what should keep us striving forward. This morning I want to simply point to, to three things in regards to the goodness of our God that I want us to hold to and remember, especially as we think about this next coming year. First, I want us to note that our God is fundamentally good. In other words, it's his nature to be good. It's who he is. He is perfect in goodness. He was never taught to be good. He has always been good and has always been good perfectly. It would be impossible for him to do anything that wasn't perfectly good. In, in Psalm 119 verse 68 it says, You are good and what you do is good. Who he is and thus everything that flows out of him, all of his motivations, all of his actions, all of his emotions, all that he is, is perfectly good. Even the judgments of God against the wicked are good. When he judges the wicked, his judgment is perfect. 
it is never any less or any more than the wicked deserve. Ever. It is perfect judgment that God gives out. They get what they have earned. And this should be a great comfort to us when we leave the judgments to God, as we're told in Romans chapter 12. To leave room for God's wrath, for he says that he will judge and he will avenge. But it's also a comfort to us when we consider his discipline of us. Now, although we're no longer set for judgment from God, since Jesus paid the price for all of our sins, as it says in Romans 12.1, it says that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're not in line for God's judgment, but we are still disciplined by God according to Hebrews. And like a good father, he disciplines us so that we may turn from our sin. He disciplines us like a, like a good father disciplines their child. Not out of hate or out of anger or out of wrath, but out of love. So that they may grow. So that they may be safe. So that they may, may become mature. The reason I find such great comfort in the fact that, that our God that his judgments are good is because of what that implies about his disciplines. If we know that his judgments against the wicked are good, are perfect, then we can rest in knowing that when he disciplines us, that those are also good. For God would never treat the wicked with more goodness than he would his children whom he loves, whom he died for. We are to take great comfort in the fact that our God is good, even when he disciplines us. 1 Chronicles 16.34 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Never forget that our God is perfectly good. Perfectly. And because he loves us in Christ with a love that will never end, then we can trust that he is good no matter what. That he is good all the time. Which brings us to the second thing that I want us to note about God's goodness. His fundamental goodness of his being. It's important to note that God's goodness is, is put on display for us. In the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's something that he's shown. Something that he's proved. We're not just supposed to take his word for it. We have tangible evidence to show it and to prove it. Jesus is the proof that our God is good to those who believe. For we deserve nothing from him but judgment. In light of all of our sins, how could we expect anything else? But even while we were yet sinners, according to Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. Friends, if, if, if life ever tricks you into thinking... That maybe God is, is not good to us. All we need to do is pick up a Bible and read about the death of our Savior. All we need to do is pick up a picture of a cross. Or picture it in our minds. For his goodness in love is there, made display for all to see. So that we, his children, would never grow weary or lose heart. It's what to push us on in knowing his goodness and his love. 
Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The point that he's getting at is not just have we, have we conceptually understood that he's good, but we know it intimately and personally because Jesus died for us. Because we have loved him and turned to him and believed upon him and his spirit has come inside of us and he has made us new and made us alive and given us eyes to see. All this is, is an experience of us tasting the goodness of God. For Peter, the love of God, the goodness of God, was the motivation for us to seek to honor him with all of our lives. For his goodness and his love is what causes us to love him in return. Now that we have tasted his goodness through Jesus, let us rest in that reality forevermore. For he's shown it. He's proved it. Thirdly, I want you to see that to ignore... Or to forget the goodness of God will cause us great harm. Doubting the goodness of God is what caused the downfall of so many in the Old Testament. And will cause the downfall of us if we do not fix our hearts and fix our eyes upon him. And upon this reality that he is good. Remember in the garden... What destroyed God's very good creation was when Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness. In Genesis 3, the, there was the, the temptation that, that Satan as a serpent levied against them. And he says, did God really say to you not to do this or this or this? And Eve replied back to him, yeah, God commanded that we're not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. But then Satan said, well, that's not true. And then he continues, he says this in verses 5 and 6, For he knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Friends, the great sin that started it all was doubting the goodness of God. In all the time that they had been in the garden before the serpent comes to Eve, which we don't know exactly how long that is, but however long it was, they never looked at the tree. They never once thought for a moment, you know what, that fruit looks better than the fruit on this tree. Because here you have for the first time Eve looking up and saying, you know, when she noticed, when she actually looked at it, she said, you know what, that, that fruit does look good. Why? Because prior to that, she trusted that God would not put a barrier in her way. That God's desire was not to keep her from joy or from satisfaction or from fulfillment. His joy, his desire was to provide for them. And so there was never reason to look at the tree. But now they looked at the tree when they doubted his goodness. I know that God said this, but that fruit looks so good. I know that God says this, but that fruit might make you smarter if you disobey. I know that God said that, but... Sin was thinking that God was holding out on them. That God was keeping good from them, and thus that God was not good himself. 
The reality was that God in his goodness was protecting them. But because they doubted his goodness, because they forgot how good God was and God is, they leapt into sin, a sin that we are all still wrestling with and dealing with the consequences of. Friends, we must never forget. We must never allow our minds to cease to ponder the great goodness of our God. Let us always, always seek to stress this in each other's minds and hearts. Our God is good. I know you're going through this trial. I know you're going through this struggle. I know you're struggling. But trust, our God is good. I know you're being tempted by this person at work. Trust that God's laws for you are good because our God is good. I know you want to gossip. I know that feels satisfying to to seek revenge. But trust our God is good and so his laws are best for us. Friends, these are the words that we need to speak to each other, to encourage each other, to hold to and to remember the goodness of our God in Psalm 25, 8, it says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. All the instruction of God is in light of his goodness. Because he is good, we trust his word. We follow his example and we obey his command. Because he's not holding out on us. He's blessing us. He's good. Good to those he judges and good to those he forever loves in Christ. Friends, never forget that our God is good. The second thing that I want us to catch, well, quickly now, in in this verse is it says, a time, or sorry, a refuge in times of trouble. I want us to note that our God is protective. The term translated refuge here literally means a stronghold. What's pictured here is a a safe, secure place. And there are different things that can be called a refuge. Okay, a tree can be called a refuge from a wolf, right? But, But that's not exactly what we're talking about because a tree is is not safe even from a wolf if the tree is on fire. So we can always think of exceptions for why a a fortress or a refuge or or a stronghold is not safe or as safe as we would like it to be. But my point here and the point of the text is not that God is a refuge like like a tree can be a refuge, but that he's he's a refuge in and of himself. He's a refuge in times of trouble. And the, 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 the silence of what kind of trouble is helpful to us. Because it means no matter the trouble. He is not sometimes safe. He is always safe. He is always stronger than any enemy that could come against us. He is always the safest place for his children to run to, to find protection and safety from their enemies and their fears. And there are several texts in the scriptures that that, that point to and stress how our God is our refuge or stronghold in the Old Testament that we could look at. But I just, I want to give you a couple and, and help us to make 
inferences from the reality that Nahum here says that he's a refuge in times of trouble. So I'm going to go through these quickly. You may have to write them down rather than turn there because you probably won't get to them. But in Isaiah 25.4, it says, You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and shade for or from the heat. And then in Psalm 9.9, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. You see, God is a refuge for everyone who comes to him. He is not just a shelter from the inanimate things like heat and, and, and fire, but he is also a refuge from wicked people, from those who are oppressing you. He helps and he provides for the poor and the needy. You don't have to earn his protection. It's all of grace. And then in Psalm 46, verse 1, it says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. The point here is that God, who never sleeps, who is always, is always available to us, He is our ever-present help. He is our ever-present shelter or refuge. He is never locked up and locked away from us. He is never too busy to protect and to provide for His children. He is always available to, to aid us in our times of trouble or distress. And then in Psalm 27.1, it says, The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then Psalm 37.39, The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He or His is their stronghold in a time of trouble. You see, in being our salvation, He is, he is defeated. He has saved us from our greatest enemy, sin and death. Jesus conquered these enemies, and they stand condemned. God Almighty, He Himself, is our safe place. And because of that, there is no place better to be. Heaven is not safe unless God is there. Is God with you? Because if He is with you, then should that not affect the way in which you view the world? How you should live? what you should say, and what you should fear. I want you to try to imagine the safest place possible, no matter what it is. Trust me, it is never as safe as being with the Lord. For the Lord is our salvation. He is the stronghold of our lives. We need not a church building or a sacred place to be safe. Where the believer is, there is holy ground. The Lord, our salvation, our stronghold, is with us. Psalm 2, verse 12 says, Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Or in Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. It is our blessing to be able to rest in God, to be protected by God, to be sheltered in God. Scripture repeatedly calls those who rely upon God Blessed of Him. We will have trials in this life. But blessed are those who take shelter in Him. Who run to Him. Blessed are those who never endure those trials alone. Blessed are those who have God Almighty as their shelter. For they will always be saved. And then in Proverbs 18.10 it says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. The righteous 
Those who seek the Lord's will know the Lord. And they are known, or I should say, and they know him by name. They know him personally. And they run into him and are saved. For he is the greatest protection and provision that we as believers could ever have. No matter the trouble, God is more. No matter the trial, God is greater. We have a refuge unlike any other. And this should affect, it should affect the way we deal with trials. For our God is our safe place. That should affect how often we run to him and how we do so. Just as God's fury, as you if you read this letter in its entirety, is poured out fully upon those who sin, those who reject him, so his protection is also poured out fully on those who run to him and trust in him in their times of trouble. The last point that I want us to make is from the end of the verse. Our God knows. It says, He cares for those who trust in Him. The word translated He cares literally means to know. He knows. The point is not simply intellectual knowledge. I know many people, but that doesn't mean I truly know them. I know of them. And many of you can say, for example, that you, you know me. But you don't know me like my wife does, or like my parents do, or like my, the best friend I've had since I've been five. To know in the Old Testament like this means to know someone intimately by experience. The word implies love and care over time. It means to be committed to someone in knowledge. We must always remember that our God knows us. He knows your name. He does. He knows what you prefer to be called. He knows where you are. He knows what you're facing. He knows those things that you keep in the back of your mind that you never tell anyone else. He knows all the details of your life. He knows the number of the hairs upon your head. Or, he knows the number of hairs you wish were on your head. He knows you inside and out. And he loves you. He's committed to you in Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter, chapter 10 verse 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep. God knows us. He knows our doubts and he knows how to encourage our hearts and our faith over time. He's committed to us in love for the long haul. And he is pleased to be our shelter. He is pleased when we turn to him for help, protection, and comfort. When we trust in him, it pleases him. It delights our God when we trust him. When we believe that he is good. When we trust that he will protect us. And we believe that he knows us. And will remain steadfast in his love to us. You know, friends, I, I pray that as you go through this year, 
no matter what the Lord allows to come before us, that you fix your mind upon who our God is. That you cling to Him and that you determine yourself to know Him better. To love Him more faithfully and to serve Him more diligently. Remember Psalm 118.1 Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His love endures forever. Friends, do not forget these simple realities. That our God is good. That our God is our protector. And that our God knows us. When you find yourself in doubt of that, when you find yourself struggling in the midst of the trials of life or whatever this year, Lord willing, brings, I pray that you will go to Nahum 1.7 and you'll be encouraged as you read that the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble, and he cares for those who trust in him. God bless. Happy New Year.